The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit with a mission to connect people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River Basin through Indigenous voices. Find out more at confluenceproject.org. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. The death of George Floyd in May of 2020 sparked many conversations about racial injustice in the United States, but it also reminded people about lessons from the past. Here at Confluence, we thought about Ed Edmo and Lonnie Roberts. Ed is Shoshone Bannock Nez Person Yakima. Lonnie's ancestors came as white settlers to the Pacific Northwest. They both grew up in the Dalles, Oregon, but had very different experiences in their community because of their race. Lonnie and Ed shared stories from their childhoods in the 2007 essay, Parallel Lives. We brought Ed and Lonnie together for a virtual event to reflect on their childhoods, answer questions from viewers, and to discuss how their experiences offer lessons for today. Here are those excerpts from that conversation. Maybe I should tell you how this chapter actually came about. Ed was a speaker at an environmental justice conference. Uh, I think maybe 2005, I'm not sure. He wanted to photocopy some of his poetry to be able to autograph it and sell it to people attending the conference. And so we went over to my office at Oregon State and went to the photocopier and we were photocopying Ed's poetry and he just simply turned to me and said asked me one question that really uh, rocked me back on the heels of my soul he said Lonnie do you remember when we were kids Indian kids couldn't swim in the swimming pool and I was I was stunned because I never realized it I didn't ever notice and that's how we started this a very long conversation went over a couple of years about different things in our hometown and and that this book chapter is the result of that one question Ed asked at the photocopier. And I'm grateful. Thank you, thank you, yeah. And Ed, how do you feel about that? I mean, there do you, do you feel like um the people that you meet in Oregon, are they aware of its racist past? I really hated cops and the Dallas that find a drunk Indian man downtown, push you around, call you wagon burner, war hoop, you know. They'd cuff me and they'd grab you by heels and break you down the stairs. Then and come out, you can take another swing at them. They'd add another charge called resisting arrest. They'd cuff you back up, put the boots to you. You'd go to court, they'd give you a high fine night serving in jail. They knew that, um, we found the need on the river to fish. I saw it happen over and over and over again. I really hated police. I still don't trust cops. When I go east of 82nd to teach, I don't go out at night by myself. I don't trust the cops. And Lonnie, I wonder if you could talk about, you talked a lot about how, how did I not see this and how that dawned on you as an adult. I wonder if you can talk about that journey for yourself, because it seems to me that that's, a lot of the journey that a lot of uh, a lot of people are going through now. Well, I should say 
The first five or six times we presented this publicly, predominantly at Oregon State, I cried through it because it is so painful to me to realize the role that I played in maintaining the oppression of a group of people. When I read the stories today about all the folks who think that there's really nothing going on against Black people or uh, Latinos, or I, I understand that they just have not ever examined their own life. In other words, it was always out looking at what other people were doing as opposed to the parts that each of us play in maintaining these systems of oppression. They're, they're only maintained because we all play a part. So the question we got is, do you feel there is more awareness of the losses suffered by Indian people now in the Dalles? My niece, about four years ago, organized a Christmas party for Indians that live at Inlu sites, at sites that have been caught up by the Dallas, by the dams along the river, the Bonneville Dam, the Dallas Dam, the Dam. She got more help from people in Hood River than she did the Dalles. It is kind of backwards, though, for me. And Lonnie, do you have any thoughts on that? One of the things that I think is most important is to ask the people who are affected rather than white people uh, that question, because we could always say, oh, of course, it's much better when, in fact, it's not better at all. And so I think we should listen to the people who are affected by these oppressive systems rather than the people who are benefiting from them. Not that I feel like I'm benefiting. Well, well put. Um, So there's one other question to you specifically, Lonnie, and I'll just read it. Lonnie spoke about her dad maintaining until the end of his life the worldview that Indians were not subject to racism. Did he ever allude to their violence toward us as, quote unquote, as justification for the way things are? This is a racist myth that has been perpetuated in families. And I didn't begin to reflect on that until college. And this comes from Dan Cushing. One of my former students. No, he never referred to anything about that they have a good reason to be violent toward us or anything like that. He never referred to anything that, um, you know, that comes from uh, like an excuse. No, he didn't ever. To both of you, and Ed, if you want to start first on this one from Lisa Commander, what can the Dalles, uh, and I would say you know, other communities too, um, do to honor uh, Native heritage and First Nations as an ancient uh, fishing center? Specifically, I think she means about Salalo Falls, but also um, Native areas. What, what can communities like the Dalles do today? Well, each year they have a salmon feast, second Sunday in, in April at Salalo. Uh, the first Sunday in April, you can go to Longhouse to have a sound feast. Second Sunday, you can go to Slough to have a sound feast. Third Sunday, you can go to Rock Creek have a sound feast. Fourth Sunday, you can go to Fountain have a sound feast. Go to these ceremonies and be respectful. Don't walk on the dirt with the streets. You have to have moccasins, you know. The women are on the south side, men are on the, on the north side of the Longhouse. That's the way it is, you know. That's where we do our ceremony, so be respectful. One of Ed's nieces, I think, her name's Lana Jack, ran a uh, GoFundMe campaign to be able to provide masks and uh, hand sanitizers to the people who live at Salilo Village 
it's not an official Indian village, but it is a, it is an Indian village, and so they have no access to benefits. And so, if I were looking, uh, you could contact uh, Lana Jack uh, at Salilo Village and see what they need. They don't have any way of providing, and they don't get government benefits. So one other question um, that we got is alluding to the idea of the flooding of Salilo Falls and what effect that had on the Native community. And it's hard to ask this question because it's so profound, but uh, Rhonda Richardson specifically asks um, whether there is a correlation between the flooding of Salilo Falls, Ed, if you have thoughts on this, and the rise of alcoholism, domestic violence, child abuse, mental health, and trauma, and, and poverty. And and what impact um, did the, the flooding have on those things? Well, in effect, the fishing instead of fishing up platforms, now have boats and fishing with um, dip nets, set nets, you know, big 200 foot nets. My uncle repaired nets. That was his job. Um, he moved to the Yakima Senior Center and came back. Uncle, why'd you move back? He said, they gave me a small yard. I can't set my nets out to fix them. You know, and uh, there's always been alcoholism, you know. I didn't feel good. I took it out of myself. I, I didn't think I was good enough, so I, I abused myself the way I was treated. It only was I prejudiced from white people's lateral oppression that bullies would throw rocks at me saying, get out of here outside because my tribe's from Idaho, not from Oregon. And I had raised with that. Uh, kind of oppression also. So not only do have prejudice from white people, prejudice from Indians, uh, but yeah, it's always been PTSD uh, from, like I said, I'm not a fisherman anymore. I thought I'd become a fisherman. My part of role model was taken away as a male, you know, so that had impact on me. I can't fish anymore. Maybe we, maybe I should say, or somebody should say that um, at the time that uh, Bonneville was in place before I was born, but then all the rest of the dams, uh, maybe Grand Coulee as well, but the Dalles and John Day, and I can't remember. But at any rate, the, uh, there was an agreement when the fishing villages along both sides of the Columbia, behind Bonneville, behind the Dalles, behind those people were supposed to have been given, when they were washed out and buried, they were supposed to have been given homes and uh, built by the U.S. government, and it never has happened. There is still today anybody who comes down the gorge at the foot of where the White Salmon River enters the Columbia, there is an ancient fishing group, built village, small, I don't know, 20 people, Ed, do you know how many people live there? Yeah, but three people, yeah. They don't have any buildings. There's no buildings. There's no, in other words, the federal government has never kept their word. And also, Chief Johnny Jackson, he's a chief of one of the tribes along the river. His house burnt down a couple of years ago, and they brought the fire engines in, took the fire hose up to the, to the fire hydrant. There's no water. His house burnt down. And he said they made many promises. They built the Bonneville Dam. He remembers that. They never kept one. Can you talk about the Salilo Park Project and other plans 
uh, from Mar Martha Sedgwick. So just very briefly for those who are curious about the Celilo Park project and where it stands right now, it is uh, officially on hold, as you know, and you can check this out on our website, um, confluenceproject.org, if you go to the Riverside section. The project was designed by Maya Lynn in collaboration with uh, the four Columbia River Treaty tribes that have cultural uh, connections to Celilo Falls. That's the Warm Springs, the Umatilla, the Nez Perce, and the Yakima. And the project was moving forward with the blessing and approval of all four tribes, as you know. Uh, but in 2018, the Yakima Nation uh, rescinded that support. And we uh, were advised by our tribal partners to, to just wait and just put it on hold, not give up. Um, the Warm Springs, the Nez Perce, and the uh, the Umatilla tribes still strongly support the project. And so we have made a commitment to complete that project as best we can. But for now, it's not moving forward unless all four uh, tribes are on board with that. So Colin, so, what was the Yakima's objection? Well, as I and I don't want to speak for them at all, but as I understand it, there's a concern about uh, turning Celilo Park in particular, um, with, given its uh, cultural um, significance and its historic significance, of turning it into a, a tourist destination. That's, um, that's what I've read. Yes, and our response to that is that we don't want it to be. And the the, the project um, has gone through many iterations and many designs with the idea of not turning it into a tourist destination, but to, but to uh, turn what is now a dilapidated park into a place of respect, a place for reflection, a place to connect about history, and, and above all, educate people about Celilo Falls. This is a critical part of, of Northwest history, and it's largely erased and missing from the common discourse and from people's understanding of the Columbia River system, uh, something that we all have a, a, a connection to. And so the purpose of the Celilo Park Project is to educate people about Celilo Falls, to honor the indigenous people of the Columbia River system, and to strengthen the tribal presence along the Columbia River. Because you go to that park right now and it's, it's pretty much a rest stop. But this is a dialogue and we are uh, we try as best we can to follow the principle of we listen to everyone and we respect all voices when it comes to this. It's not a it's not an argument. It's a it's a it's a reflection and it's a discussion. Uh, one question that we got uh, to you, Ed, is very specific to Confluence. It's from Bonnie Osborne and is um, uh, do you support the, the Celilo Park project the designed by Maya Lin that's proposed by the Confluence project? I do. I do support that. Also, uh, uh, Nancy Ives, some people are going to do write a symphony about Slalom. I'm working with them. You do a symphony about Slalom. Marv Ross did Ghost of Slalom. He contacted me before uh, they uh, began work on it, and I got him Slalom uh, books. Uh, Welcome to my Salmon Feast and Linda Indian Home. In the video, Last Salmon Feast at Slalom contacted me. So another chance to tell a story in a different way through symphony. So I'm looking forward to that. Plus zooming around. <laughs> <laughs> Two more from our registrations. Um, and this is a complicated one because it has to do with terminology. But what did quote unquote assimilation mean to you? And how did it affect you? Uh, assimilation was the... In the 50s, they had a program called Relocation, where they shipped Indians from the reservation to the cities. 
and set them up. And about a month, I forgot about them, didn't give me any more services. Indians would find their way back to the reservation. You know, so they always tried to make white people out of us. Between 1910 and 1930, Indian reservation was uh, had anthropologists like a scourge. Like every Indian had anthropologists. Anthropologists study Indians, people. They studied us, and they have Indian Organization Act in 1930, where the traditional leaders were not leaders anymore, and and introduced Robert's Rules of Order government, based on the New England township, introduced graft and, and, and politics to the Indian reservations. So I really don't trust anthropologists or government. For many numbers of years, and I don't know what years, that I've seen articles and photos and everything, um, white people used to steal Indian children, take them, and yeah. put them in boarding schools, and cut their hair, which is a, yeah. a significant violation of some cultures, and force them to dress like white people and learn to speak and read and write in English. And so that was a forced assimilation that uh, I'm not sure how long those children were kept there, maybe until they were young adults. Uh, yeah. But there's some violent forced assimilation done to indigenous people on this continent. Yeah, it was called uh, destroy the Indian, save the man. A lot of crippled punishment, a lot of sexual abuse. One guy, he was South Dakota, he ran away, he fell into a creek wintertime. I'm glad they found me, even though they beat me up bad, they saved my life, you know. So it was really treacherous. Uh, one of them, she was from Montana. Her brother ran away. That night, they, they had a courtyard in the middle. They could hear him scream in the courtyard, but they told him not to get out, out of bed to watch him. You could hear him scream. Those things happened over and over again to us, trying to make us white. In 500 years of fighting, not one Indian has turned white, you know. We can't see it turn white. Um, so one question uh, that we had uh, from the registrations had to do with Salila, or I'm sorry, uh, Willamette Falls. As you may know, that there's a there's a project or in the works there to welcome people back to Willamette Falls near Oregon City. And the question comes from Nathaniel Corum: To what extent is uh, Willamette Falls now a surrogate for Salilo Falls today? Uh, I know that when they closed the river. For Indian fishing, all Indians went to Willamette Falls and fished there. I know legends about Willamette Falls. Uh, Kalapuya lived there. Kalapuya. My mom was lived in what's called Wapato Island. That was Savage Island. That's where my mom was lived, you know. So, and I do a uh, land acknowledgement talking about the Kalapuya, talking about how they lived in uh, Willamette Valley. They got restoration in the 80s. Government had a thing called termination where they said, Government, I can honor our treaties, honor our promise to you. We're going to pay you off, give you a lot of money, and forget about you. And Grand Round was the second or third uh, to get restored. Celeste was one, Klamath was one. First one was the Menominee, uh, Ada Deer. They were the first one to get restoration, get the rights restored. So it's a long haul to do, do things like that. Yeah. Do you have any, any, any final thoughts about what we've talked about today? Well, I would say uh, 
there are no places in Oregon or actually on this continent that there were not and are not indigenous people living. And there is nothing preventing uh, anybody who has seen this from going out and trying to do make a contact how, how you can and ask their stories about where you live, where you grew up maybe, or where you're living now. There's, there's no reason that you can't go do this. Any thoughts or anything you want to add, Ed? I have a poem called Slala Fisherman. He made the nest and tested the knots. Little did you know what was to hold you after the sound of water falling over what used to be. Here's a hug for you, Ed. Hug, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll see you before too long, I'm sure. A special thanks to Ed Edmo and Lonnie Roberts for sharing their stories. You can watch or listen to them read their essay, Parallel Lives, at the Confluence website. And in the beginning of 2021, there will be more stories to enjoy. That's when we'll be launching the next season of the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. Episodes will explore what it means to be American, caring for the ecosystems that support orca and salmon, and a conversation with writer Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass. Those episodes and more in the next season of the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, visit confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.